What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Ah, Paris. That beautiful city of lights and towers, bounded with a touch of exotic romance. Ernest Hemingway once said, If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. It seems that not only did Hemingway find Paris to be a movable feast, authors of children's books do too. When you think of Paris and children's books, the ones that most certainly will come to mind are Ludwig Bemelman's books about Madeline. Since its first publication in 1939, Madeline and her adventures with Miss Clavel have brought Paris to many generations of readers. But one of my most recent favorites set in Paris is Mo Willems and Tony Detrelisi's book, The Story of Diva and Flea. Diva, a very small dog who lives at 11 Avenue Le Play in Paris, feels safe in her garden, even though big feet might step on her. Flea, a cat who lives on the street, loves to explore and has adventures every day. One day, Flea's travels go past Diva's garden, and the two strike up a friendship. Flea regales Diva with stories of the wide world and eventually convinces her to take a few small steps to see the tower that pierces the sky. In return, Diva introduces Flea to the wonders of the indoors, like food that is there for the taking and brooms that don't chase you away. Together, the pair discover new worlds as they face down their greatest fears, and Diva learns to confront the feet entering her garden. Willem's signature playfulness, balanced with Detralisi's rich illustrations, create a beautiful storybook perfect for developing readers. Diva and Flea are delightful characters whose personalities shine through with the humorous text and detailed illustrations. The setting is perfect for the plot, and the illustrated backgrounds expertly reinforce the scenes, adding richness to the story. The subtle theme about facing your fears and exploring the world is effortlessly displayed through both Diva and Flea's point of view in such a way that young readers will certainly respond. Along with the work's division into brief chapters and the supportive illustrations balancing each page of text, this story is perfect for sharing or for a young one's independent reading. So maybe if this year a trip to Paris is just not in the plans, take a little tip from Rachel's world and find a way to travel there through the pages of a great book. In modern times, music can be heard everywhere. It swirls around us in the grocery store or the elevator and engulfs us at the movies and on TV. Music is so present in our lives that we've learned to tune it out. Do we ever stop and listen to it, allowing ourselves to experience the feelings it brings? Our guest today, music educator Jennifer Purdy, talks to Rachel about such questions, with particular attention to the importance of music in the lives of our children. Purdy has been a music educator for over 30 years and believes she's got the happiest job in the world. She currently teaches music at Highland Park Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
For nearly a decade, Purdy has been a composer consultant for a Utah Opera Company and writes original operas with elementary school children. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Purdy. We're in studio with Jennifer today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks. I am excited to talk with you today about one of my favorite subjects, music, and this is something that I'm passionate about, and I know that you're passionate about it, so I'm excited to share our passion with our listeners today. So let's just start out. Why is music important, and particularly, why is it important in the lives of children? I think, first of all, it's always been important to me, and the emotional tie um, that I feel when I hear music, I play music, I'm experiencing music these different ways. And I think I went into my job as a music educator because I wanted to share that and let children experience those same feelings and, and have some of the same experiences that I had. Um, the emotional tie to music is so important. And I think, especially in today's world, there's a kind of a deadening of emotion, perhaps. And I think music can really help tap into that. And... Let people feel. And I think that's a wonderful thing to remember, Jennifer. I think that we really want to make sure that we understand this emotional connection. Because for me, too, I think you're very right that music is about emotion. And particularly for children who are developing and learning to express emotion in proper ways, I think music can have that really strong connection to help them develop those kinds of things. So how do you go about doing that? So can maybe explain to us a little bit about how you help develop these kinds of understandings with children to help them delve into that emotional aspect of music? I don't think I maybe express it as emotion or actually have them identify it as that every time, but sometimes just helping them make a connection to them personally. Um, how does this music relate to you? With younger children, sometimes I'll say, how does this make you feel? And simply going through a listening exercise and giving them the opportunities to hear a variety of music. Often we feel like we need to be energizing children and have everything be upbeat and peppy and, you know, a big hard rhythm, you know, steady beat. Sometimes letting them hear and experience a variety of different things can help them relate in different ways and feel those different emotions. And I think children will learn to have preferences maybe for certain genres, but they won't know that until they've been exposed to that. And children who've never had the opportunity to listen to classical music or know how to listen to it may find that they really like it. And I think this is this is an important thing as we talk about this, Jennifer, that there's this sense of emotional and connection. But there's some also other important things that music can do for us. There's some really great connections to literacy and reading and communicating. So talk a little bit about that kind of extension. How does music help us communicate with our world better? Well, I love that you're using the term literacy as communication. I'm assuming that you're using those as kind of equitable terms. Yes, that is true. And all my listeners on the show will know that we define literacy very broadly here. We define it as anything we do to communicate with our world. So there's definitely music literacy, right? There is. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many other kinds of literacies too. There's social literacy, uh, the social cues and things like that. Um, if you think about literacy as far as reading or language arts, which a lot of people would equate literacy to that, Wow, are there so many connections between 
music and literacy. First of all, the way that you actually read from left to right um, is the same. Both music and language literacy require some auditory sound distinction ability. Um, They both use symbols of different ways, being able to decode and use symbols. Um, They both use fluency, being able to be fluent in speaking or reading or performing. I love that connection of fluency because I think that's one of the things, this movement from beginning to end and how the things are connected sometimes is more obvious in music sometimes than it is with stories and reading. And I've seen great success with kids who take this sense of, okay, we're going to learn this song or we're going to learn this piece and they're better able to understand that progression of fluency from beginning to end than they would if we were trying to do it through text. Absolutely. Other things that have some parallels are vocabulary, um, comprehension, performance, intent, intent of composer, intent of author. Um, it's very – that's a really great way to make connections to music is what's the story behind this? There's inferences you can make in both language arts and in music um, with just the difference of pitch or timbre, the instruments that are playing – structure of chords. And of course, there's the writing of language arts versus composing of music. There's so many similarities and a lot of really great connections. Um, So those are some literal connections, but there's a lot of connections as far as research that's been done with small children, preschool to K or one children who, who can keep a steady beat are actually better language arts learners and better readers. There's a real connection between that. Isn't that interesting? And I love that because really, truly, when you think about early language, um, a lot of what the early language learning going on is about rhythm and about beat of the language. And when we think of children and reading aloud, we think of the rhyming kinds of books and those types of things, which really connect to that sense of rhythm. And even now, there's lots of research out there and lots of programs, early reading programs that say one of the main things you need to do with your kids to help develop early literacy skills is to sing to them. And there's so many ways that parents could do that. Reinforce the rhyming. You said that. Um, discovering new vocabulary in songs. Children can create their own verses and make silly versions of familiar songs. And just children will do this without being prodded, but add their actions or movement or their own instruments in their own version of, of songs and books. And in play, it will come out that way, but they will naturally do those things to create Um, their own way of experiencing that song or that book. And that creativity sometimes gets shut down or children feel a lot more self-conscious about going through that process the older they get, which which is kind of a sad thing because that's where a lot of the brain development, a lot of their self-concept and their image of themselves will come through the way they see themselves through play and creating And that really is what we're all about here, particularly with the sense of building literacies is it's that brain development. It's it's connecting all those pieces of our brain to make us more holistically able to interact with our worlds. 
Absolutely. I think that's when you we go back to the initial question of why is music important? That's one of the big ones is brain development and brain activity. Music just fires up all these different parts of the brain. And I feel like um, music is like giving vitamins to the brain. It does all these wonderful things for brain development. Um, and I think music also affects the heart. It brings joy. And there's not a lot of things um, that you can say have a, a direct connection, but I really believe that music can bring, besides all these wonderful things with your brain, how about affecting the heart and bringing joy and happiness? Yeah, that connection is a perfect note to end on because it is about the brain, but it's also about the heart. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for taking the time today to help us understand more about how music is important to our lives and our literacies. That was Jennifer Purdy talking with Rachel Wadham about the power of music at home and in the classroom. Next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel welcomes literacy expert Jennifer Wimmer. They talk about the importance of technology in our lives and the lives of our children. Sometimes we're a little too fearful about technologies that actually allow us to better engage in the world. Wimmer is a faculty member in the Department of Teacher Education at Brigham Young University. She teaches courses in the elementary education program focused on literacy development methods. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Wimmer. Welcome, Jenny. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the changes in our sense of literacy. Technology has impacted our our society in such amazing ways, and it really has changed our conception of literacy and our conception of how we interact with literacy. So what do you think technology has done to, to change, either in a good way or a bad way, the, the way we interact with literacies? I think it's always going to be positive. Um, we tend to think of technology as something that is plugged into the wall. But at one point, chalk was a technology. So I think anytime something new comes that, that kind of rocks our world, yeah. if you will, does a shift, we panic because the olden days were always better. And 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 so we kind of romance, romanticize mm -hmm. the past without think and with a little bit of fear for what is what is there. And so this is where we do see, I think, the divide among the old and the young, because I think youth, children are open to embracing new ideas and they're adventurous and we tend to panic and, and cling to things. But but we have to always be aware that things are shifting and things are changing. And, and I think we're just getting smarter. Um, for example, we as we think about when, when cell phones first came out and texting, I mean, that was just an unreal event. And, and we texted with characters and, and, and people were concerned because nobody wrote Y-O-U-R. People just wrote the, the letter R or two. But to me, if we, if we, if we'll think about texting as a language, nobody's ever going to say, oh, you learned French. You're not as smart as if you just spoke English yeah. or if you, if you just spoke Spanish or whatever it may be. So children, I think, are developing. It's a, it's a language. Yeah. And they're working within that language that makes sense to them. And, and again, it's one of those things where I think we have to have the explicit conversations with children because their world is messy and, and they're able to, to cross borders, if you will, yeah. very easily. Um, and so if we'll be able to say to kids, you have to write in academic language for this paper. Yeah. Or you have to, I need you to speak this yeah. way. Then I think they're, oh, okay. Yeah. But we take for granted and, and, and we assume that, that children understand in what scenarios and in what situations yeah. what language is appropriate when I think that's something we have, we have to help them do. 
Um, I think with now with keyboards, now it's not cool to write in shorthand, but you yeah. have to write expansively. Yeah. yeah. And and now we use emoticons or emojis now. Yeah. And I mean, so things are just the, things are changing. And I and I think it's one of those again where it's not to be scared. One of my favorite things in thinking about new literacies, thinking about technology. Um, it is by Don Lovitz in the University of Connecticut that he talks about what we have to do is to learn how to learn within change. Mm. I just think that's so powerful. That is profound. Because yeah. we are – society is constantly changing. We can't yeah. keep up with it. So we just have to be comfortable in yeah. the idea that it's we're, we're learning within constant change. Yeah. Well, and communication too I think is very much an emotional thing too because as human beings what we want to do is communicate emotionally. And I think things like emojis and those type of things – add in that where we can yes. do that and things like dance and music and other forms communicate emotions in a way that text cannot really right. at at that deep level so allowing our children to engage in this wide range of literacies helps them to understand not only you know the thinking logical side of humanity but also the emotional side as well and i think too is if when we're thinking about literacy literacy tends to be equated to reading and reading is equated to decoding. And so we think, well, if we can just learn the alphabet and if we can just sound out the words, then we are going to be fine. Um, and that I think is the greatest myth that we can keep putting forward. Um, decoding only gets us so far. You have to know you have to have meaning to decode. So if you can, you can sound out any word you want, but if you don't know what that word is, Decoding isn't, isn't going to be helpful. Um, when we think about technology, the content areas have always been multimodal. Um, you think about science, you think about math, the arts, social studies. And so, it, it, again, it, I think it's always so interesting because when you get into those, then the image becomes powerful. You have yeah. to be able to read a graph. You have to yeah. be able to read an equation. You have to be able to – so the literacies that are attached to you, there's a math – there's a set of math literacies, of art literacies, of – History literacy, you know those kind of literacies, and 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 those are more dependent upon a set of symbols or a set of images than than the printed word. And so I think if we can think about literacy as as being more broad, and I think new literacies technology forces us to go that way because it it requires us to think in bigger ideas than just than just decoding. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think that techn one of the things technology has done has allowed the other literacies to become more universal because I think these other literacies were very dependent upon if you were in that field or in that profession. Yes. So if you're a mathematician, that would be fine. Or if you were a historian, that would be fine. But today it's very much more universal. So I think one of the things technology, it hasn't created these new literacies, essentially. It's just made them more available for mass consumption. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting because I'll talk to people in other fields outside of, of education and they'll say, oh my goodness, we've been talking about this for, for decades, for hundreds yeah. of years. And, you know, congratulations yeah. for just getting on board for thinking that this that this is important. But again, I think it's it's seeing it in the classroom and, and acknowledging it at home of being able to say that, again, it, it highlights opportunities and it highlights experiences and it highlights talents for the person who, again, may be labeled yeah. as a struggling reader, as a print-based reader, being able to say, but they're literate in all of these other ways. And so it, it does very much go for not a deficit model, but a model of encouragement and, yeah. and of seeing now here's where you are. Now let me take you to 
you know, let, let me further yeah. advance you and, and open yeah. up different opportunities for you. Well, and I think partly as parents, what we want to do is open up those opportunities for our, our children. And we want to make sure that they do have all of these opportunities. So the more op- opportunities we give them for all of these multimodal literacies, the more we can say, oh, yeah, you can be an historian or you can be right. a mathematician or you can be a scientist or you can be a dancer or you can be an artist. And that just provides them with this great foundation for all of these potential things that they might they might find their own passions for. Yeah. So exciting. I think, yeah. you know, again, we open doors for children and that's that's the best we can do. I've always said that educators should take the Hippocratic Oath that we knowingly do no harm for children. And so when we only offer a certain type of text, when we only call literacy decoding, when we, I mean, when, the more narrow we make things, the more we say you can't have it. The more we open it, the more we, uh, you know, offer opportunities, children will participate in society. The, that kind of sense of you can't have it or you can't do it is is really limiting, especially to children. And I think we cut off their, cut off their engagement in the world yes <laughs> really quickly if we just say no that's that's not what we value they say the motivation in young children to read print-based materials declines more from first to fourth grade than it does in any other time so from the moment they start to read and start to be compared to others their motivation begins to decrease mm-hmm. but if we'll again approach it as a you, we're all readers we're we're all literate then we're inviting instead of closing. That's a wonderful way to conceptualize all this. Let's open the world for for our children. Thanks so much, Jenny, for joining us today. Thank you. That was BYU professor and literacy expert Jennifer Wimmer talking to Rachel about welcoming technology into our lives, which enables us to better engage with the world. We finish up the show today with two English students who are studying literature at BYU, Rosie Ribeira, a senior, and Katie Erian, a graduate student. They visit with Rachel about their favorite young adult realistic fiction books and also discuss how they find good books. We're in studio today talking with two of my interns, Katie and Rosie. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Both of you love books like I do, so this is going to be fun for our listeners. Rosie, let's start us out. What, What is one of your favorite books? Okay, one of my favorite books of all time is called On the Jellicle Road by Melina Marchetta, who's an Australian author, and she's great. It's a realistic fiction book about a girl, a young girl, teenager, so it's like young adult, who is abandoned on this road um, called Jellicle Road of this small town that her mother grew up in, and she kind of discovers different things about her mom's past and her own past, and it's really good. I and love that book, too. Yeah. Yeah, so and it's, have you read it? Yeah. It's a great one. And I just finished Saving Francesca just last week. Another one of her books. So yeah. tell us about Saving Francesca. I liked it. When you mentioned Jellicle Road's one of my favorites, too, that I wrote, had written down. It sticks with you for a long time. Saving Francesca is really interesting. It's about a young girl who's dealing with her mom who has depression. And, you know, I, I thought it was so beautifully written. It was so carefully crafted. It was really about a serious topic, but it wasn't really bleak. She, the, this Francesca had a lot of hope and she was trying mm-hmm. to help her mom and it ends on a hopeful note. I mean, her mom doesn't get 100% better, but I thought it was yeah. really a great read for like a high school student, especially someone dealing with mental illnesses in their family or themselves because mm-hmm. it did it so well. That's one of the things I really like about young adult books is they tend to deal with really tough 
problems in really beautiful ways. And they they can really help Mm -hmm. us deal with those kinds of problems or understanding how they work in a really interesting way. And maybe even take some of the pressure off of it because we're looking at somebody else. Right. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, when you you read both of these books, Rosie, did you feel like you were learning something new or did that give you like more sympathy for people that were going through those kinds of experiences or how did it impact Um, you at that kind of deeper level? Well, I've... I know a lot of people that have mental illnesses, my family involved, and to some extent myself. And so it's just, I thought it was interesting to to see, like, I guess other people's experiences. I think, like, there is that potential to learn more about hope at the end yeah. for these situations that seemed kind of hopeless. And I really like that young adult novels when they do include that kind of feeling of things will get better at the end. Well, and a lot of people even define young adult literature by that sense of hope, that that's part of their definition. And hope doesn't mean good, but it means hopeful. It means potential for growth in a very interesting way. So it can be bleak and dark, but at the same time, hopeful. So Katie, you're a mom. So you said you'd recommend this to high school readers. What about... you know, as your children grow up and how, oh, why, why would you recommend this to them in particular? This I book? think that this brings, it builds a lot of empathy as a reader for, for people struggling with mental illnesses. If you're, if you're not, I felt, I mean, I don't have a, a mom that has depression, but I have friends that do. And I suddenly saw, you know, I read this book and I had so much empathy for this mom was trying to get out of bed and she just could not, she wanted to be a mom. She could not just do it. So as a mom reading it, I thought, oh, Geez, that would be hard. That'd be really hard. You want to be there for your kids? And then reading it from the daughter's perspective was really touching. So what recommendation would you have for a reader looking for books? Or how do you make your own choices as a reader oh. to kind of decide if this book suits yeah. suits your needs? <clears throat> yeah, I'm super picky now that I've read so much in my life that I, I definitely go through a process like I have a Goodreads account and I go on there and I look up a book that I've heard of and a lot of times if I like the general blurb of it, I save it in my like books and then I let it sit there for like years and then I look <laughs> at it again and I and sometimes I delete it later on and I read reviews and sometimes um, depending on other people's recommendations, I'll, I only go so far on my own. If someone recommends a book that I have already like seen, then I will most likely read it, like right. someone else that I know. And I, especially because um, I'm a student at the university for English, and if there's other English majors that recommend it to me, I usually <laughs> I I consider it more. <laughs> and I think that's a good point. We need to find people we trust, yeah. but then also know even the people we trust may not match our needs yeah. as readers because yeah. yeah. I've had people recommend books to me and I think why in the world did they <laughs> I really trust this person and now uh, they've recommended this book and I don't know because yeah. I don't because every reader experiences things or has their own experiences yeah. experiences That's definitely differently. yeah so Katie how do you do that well, how do you I've pick it, books I've hit a different a point in my life now that most of my friends know I'm a big reader and they want me to request books for their kids That's a hard area to get into because parents are so they're picky. They're, pi- they're picky. Yeah. They have their own things they, that they're okay with. Like they can handle some violence, but they don't want any vulgarity. They can handle this, but they don't want this. So I have really found that that's been a challenge for me to try to – I have to find – if it's super clean, I will recommend <clears throat> it. But if there's anything questionable, I'll let them know and then leave it up to the parent. I mean I, there's so many good books out there that you can have great discussions with your kids. And so you just need to find a couple authors that you really like and read – 
all of those yeah, or find a mom that has similar interests as you or similar values as you and talk to her and see that way. Or the librarian at the school can help. But I've just found that recommending kids other for other parents, I have a hard time. I have an easier time recommending to my friends than for their children. So and I and I'm like Rosie. I just go on Goodreads, yeah. and I have a couple friends that everything they read I like, and I'll just read everything yeah. they put on there. I'm friends with Katie on Goodreads, and so I see all the books that I she have reads. an eclectic mix. Yes, <laughs> I have a weird mix of books. See that that's a nice thing. Get a friend who has this really eclectic sense yeah. of what they read, and and then be able to to take those things. You know, we need to take recommendations seriously, but at the same time, we need to make sure that it's right for us. Yeah. And just yeah. because somebody, even somebody who knows a lot or who somebody's really good at it, recommends it doesn't mean that it's perfect it's, for oh, us. definitely yes, not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a wonderful way to, to join in. And I hope mm-hmm. maybe someday you all out there in our listening audience can find some lovely people that can talk about yeah, books nice with you as well. So thank you, Rosie and Katie, for your time no today. Problem. BYU students Rosie Ribeira and Katie Irian talking with Rachel about their favorite young adult realistic fiction books. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>